Thank you, ladies. Oh, I wish that could go on for a while longer. You guys okay with being here till 11, right? All right. So it is my pleasure to introduce Tess Arledge to you all. I first met Tess about 14 years ago when she was the leader in the women's Bible study I attended, and that is where I first heard her story. And it's a story that has stuck with me through the years. Tess is someone who is so in love with God and yearns daily to hear his voice. This voice has led Tess across the globe serving her God. You can only imagine how excited I am that she'll be sharing a little or maybe a lot of herself with you. I would tell you more, but I don't want to spoil anything. So please join me in welcoming Tess. So I have a request. I would like you to raise your hand if you have been praying for me at any time in the last couple of weeks. Oh, how wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What you didn't know was that you committed to praying for me for the whole year. (laughs) Because I really like this high that I'm on right now, and I know the cause. So, thank you. Let's see. I have a paper here. I also have a wire. Like somebody from NCIS, but I guess they won't come and arrest us yet. So I wanted to sort of talk about my background a little bit, my parents. My mom came from a Jewish family that lived in Poland. My grandparents were born in Poland. My mom was born in Poland, and when she was a baby, they came across the ocean and brought her and her sisters here. So I have a Jewish background, and we always went to Grandma and Grandpa's house for the Jewish holidays. But she and her sisters grew up rebels. They, they were in America, and um, it was uh, like the 20s and 30s and stuff, and so she, she abandoned all that. And so... She never abandoned being Jewish. She was very, very proud of it, but not religious. She just, like, that was her heritage or her culture. And um, she married a guy who was an artist from South America. He was not Jewish. (laughs) So there was a bit of rebellion right there. And uh, they eloped after she was pregnant with me. So that was pretty unusual way back in those days. And um, they were what you would call bohemian. They did things differently. And I think the reason they did that is that really inside they felt kind of on the outskirts of the cultures that they were living in. My dad grew up in Santiago, Chile. He was born to a single mother in an era when you didn't do that. And so he was an outcast in his own society. He was furthermore, their background is German. His father was English, so he was blonde with blue eyes in a country where everybody had dark hair and brown eyes. So they called him the gringo, even though he was a Latin. 
So he brought his, you know, his culture with him in a, in a large manner, but he was ready to leave. He was really, he was well known as an artist. He was a really good artist. Uh, so he came up north with his friend Armando. <laughs> they were both very dashing, tremendously handsome. And um, so my mother married him. She eloped because where were they going to get married? You know, they had to go to City Hall. So they went to City Hall and then went back to Grandma and Grandpa and said, this is your new son-in-law. So <clears throat> my mom, uh, as I say, she, she, she liked these celebrations, but she didn't believe in them. They weren't for her. She, she went into politics. She and her sisters were interested in politics. And the more left-wing, the very better. So that's the family that I was born into. I did not have a choice, but I loved them very dearly, and they loved me, but they were a little different. And it wasn't the easiest thing in the world growing up in that family. I think there was a lot of pressure on my mom to make something of herself, to not just be a housewife, a wife, and a mother. No, she embraced the whole feminist idea that you have to do something more. And so she passed that pressure along to me, but I didn't take too well to it. And I was a rebel. They were rebels from the culture, and I rebelled against them. So she, her, it was, it was bizarre because they would talk about their bohemian life all the time, you know, the parties and the making gin in the bathtub during Prohibition and all this crazy stuff, you know, and it just was so glamorous and so much fun. But that wasn't the life that they wanted for me. My, my mom wanted me to become a professional woman. Yeah, you could get married, you know, and yeah, you could have children, but that wasn't really the goal anymore. The goal was to make something of yourself. And, uh, and I just kind of went like this. Ain't going to do it. Not going to happen. But it was also a time right around the Second World War where at least I, and I think pretty much all my friends, you didn't tell your parents, ain't going to do it. When they told you what you were going to do, you know, you said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. So there was an outside and an inside. Everybody has an outside and an inside. And mine didn't mesh. You're very fortunate if they do mesh, but mine did not. And so I was getting all this pressure to perform and to be highly educated and highly um, employed and lots of money. And inside, I was saying, no, that is not for me. I really prefer the bohemian people you were before you got married, you know, and that's where I'm going. But I didn't say that. In fact, I didn't say much of anything. I was a good student. I loved school, and, um, you know, I liked learning. So in the fourth grade, we studied um, cavemen, Egyptians, and uh, whatever comes after that, I can't, for, I can't remember. <laughs> it didn't stick too well. <clears throat> so, um, oh, Greeks and Romans, right. So in the Greeks, there was this um, legend. It's, it's still around, because I Googled it the other day to make sure I had it straight. So you can just Google it, about the Spartan boy. So you have the Athenians, you know, who are the cultured and the artistic, and you had the Spartans who were 
Spartan. They were very militaristic, and they trained their children to be militaristic. And so the story was that uh, they would train their boys to steal, steal things and, you know, pretend you didn't do it. And so this boy was out in the countryside one day, and he came across a little grouping of buildings or something, and he saw that in, the, in a cage they had a fox cub. And so he craftily stole it, but he couldn't just run around, run back with it. He had to hide it. So he put it under his shirt, and you know what happened next. That fox started eating him. This is just a story now. Just, <laughs> just a legend that typified their thinking. I, I doubt that it's true. But at any rate, that's what they thought. So the fox went under here, and it started chewing its way into his stomach. But he, for his training and for the glory of being in that culture, pretended that nothing was happening. He was stoical. Yeah, exactly. And so he took the fox all the way home, where you can think either he died or he turned the fox over. But the story was that this is how he behaved. And I heard that story and I thought, yeah, I think I'll do that. <laughs> I didn't want any foxes under there. But there was a lot, whatever stuff was going on, you were not going to hear about it. So everything that happened to me, because I had no person to talk to, I could not talk to my mother. She was totally involved in, you know, her goal for me. My father was, whatever, working and coming home again. You know, he wasn't, nobody was available to talk to. So I felt like that boy, that whatever is going to happen, you're not going to hear about it. I'm just going to put it under here, and it's going to stay there, and everything will be fine. Has anybody ever tried to do that? <laughs> it doesn't work very well. And what happens is that instead of the stoicism just staying out underneath here and you being, you know, delightful on the outside, it takes you over and you become rigid. You can't function anymore because you're not having any emotional interchange. There's nothing happening. It's just building up. But I was a kid. I was flexible. And so you just go along that way. So I was going to uh, this... Hmm, private school, that's the one where they told me about this. And in the, in the fourth grade also, they, the kids started talking about God. But really, to my knowledge, that was, was the first time I had heard about God. And they said, uh, you know, we believe in God or we don't believe in God. So I came home that afternoon and I said to mom, Mom, do we believe in God? And she said, well, you can if you want to when you get older. And so the message to me was no. We don't believe in God. She didn't come out and say it, you know. So I, I tested God. I thought, well, I'll find out for myself. So I was in our bathroom, and I looked at the towel rack over here, and I said, God, if you're real, make that towel jump on the floor and back up again. <laughs> and how many of you think he answered that prayer? <laughs> right. He did not. And so that was a you know, a challenge and a temptation that he was not. And so I thought, okay, he's not real. He doesn't count. He doesn't, you know, he's not in here. So we lived in this Jewish building, even though my dad wasn't Jewish, but we lived in this building where most of the people were Jewish. And then the larger place in Brooklyn had other ethnic groups like Italians and Irish. They were Catholic. And I thought, 
you know what? God is for them. This person called Jesus, he is for them, but he's not for us. If he's real, he's definitely not for us. We don't have anything to do with him. And so that was my thinking all, all through childhood. So another thing my parents really, um, my mother, she, she, because she was on this kick about, you know, you have to perform, you have to do this thing, it was kind of like, and, and also her Jewish background, which is, as you know, legalistic. You follow the law, so you earn your righteousness. And I had to earn her love. She was not a very loving and warm and fuzzy person. She was pretty, you know, difficult. So, so um, there wasn't a lot of love happening, and, I, and that, was, that was going in, inside under here, too. Kind of starving, you know, for love. And they also thought that um, they were both very good-looking people. They thought looks were really, really important. I was pretty cute as a kid, you know. And so you don't have to say anything about right now. <laughs> it's okay. That was a long time ago. What's that? Oh, <laughs> Joan. <laughs> Still funny. So it was really, really important to be, you know, pretty. And so they kept telling me how pretty I was. Pretty and pretty and pretty. And so pretty soon I started believing it. And wanting more, you know, that gave me value. If somebody thought I was pretty, wow, then I must be worth something. And if a man or a boy, not a man, but if a boy thought I was pretty, that was a really high goal. So that became a kind of internal goal. I wasn't going to go down mom's path and become a lawyer or a doctor because I didn't want to do that. But pretty, okay, I could be pretty. And I could get men or boys to appreciate that, and, and I'd, be, I'd be okay. You know, I'd be just fine. Crash landing coming, right? So that's page one. <laughs> then we had, then we had um, sexual lessons, I call them. Sub, sub, you know, under their covers. Oh, that's a wrong image. <laughs> Just back up and erase that part, please. Gosh. Well, that's what I have written down here, but they, were, they, weren't, they weren't overt lessons. They were lessons that you learned, you know, as you were, as you were going. So we, we were middle class. Dad was working, and um, we had everything, nice clothes, everything. We were well taken care of. We were not neglected in the least. Mom was a great cook. We had three squares every single day. Went to this wonderful school. And because of her left-leaning politics, she thought it was great if my brother and I could be friends with the supers boy. Has anybody ever heard that, that phrase, super? Thank you. One person in this whole room. A super is a superintendent. He's a person who lives in the basement. And um, this was a very distraught family, very, I wouldn't say crazy, but they, they, were, um, they were not the kind of people you really wanted your kids hanging around with. I can say that, you know, you might come and arrest me, but that's what I really think. They were not the healthiest family in the world. But we were encouraged because of her communism to go and be friends with them, so we were friends with them. 
And the boy, they had two boys and a girl. The girl was the oldest, the boy was a little older than me, and the little one was my brother's age. And we had a lot of inter interaction with them, and they would come up to our house and everything. Well, this boy matured pretty quickly, and when I was 10 or 11, he invited me to take the subway with him down to Coney Island, which wasn't all that far, but it was kind of a rough place, you know, so my mom said, okay. <laughs> Don't know what she was thinking. <laughs> she said, okay. Okay, so I went down there with him, and we went on a couple of rides, you know, and uh he, he, see, he sees this booth. It's kind of like this thing, except bigger, and you're in it. And, and it's a big glass booth, and it's a mechanical, you know, person with a turban. And they're giving out cards. And he says, let's go get our fortune told. And something in my brain said, uh-uh. So I said, no, I'm not getting my fortune told. That was such a blessing that that border was not crossed. And I never, ever got into the occult just kept away from it. So maybe that was a Jewish upbringing. Who knows? I don't know. But that was pretty good. So we went down there. We came back. And he wanted to be my boyfriend. But I was too young. And furthermore, he was too tough. I, I didn't want to be his girlfriend. And so I told him, I don't want to see you. So the next week, I was downstairs with my brother, who was four years younger. And um, this kid comes along. And he sees me, and he's furious because I broke up with him. And uh, he starts, he didn't pick on me. He was that much of a gentleman. He starts pushing my brother down on the sidewalk. And I'm yelling. My dad looks out the window from the second story and gets himself down there, grabs the kid on the nape of his neck, and shakes him. Don't you ever do that again. Let's him go. The kid take, takes off. He never bothered us again. But that was the first instance where mom said one thing and dad had to rescue us from the consequences. I didn't really put it to myself that way at the time, but that's exactly what happened. So it was, you know, a family of conflicting values in some areas. Not all areas, but in some areas. That was the first sexual lesson. So then we moved to Queens. I was 11 and a half, and uh, we moved to Queens. I, ha I went to high school after a year or two. Had some boyfriends. They were fine. Had some girlfriends. I was very bookish. By the way, there's going to be a quiz um, on all those book titles. So if you've got them in your head, you'll be okay. And the, yeah, they're available for purchase. No, just kidding. They're right here. So if you want to come up and take a look at them, they're wonderful books. Wonderful, wonderful. They'll stimu stimulate your brain, and you'll learn a lot of new things. And there's even a novel. How about that? They say to me in the library over here, you never read novels. Well, sometimes I do. This one's really terrific. Okay, so that's them. Um, how did I get on books? Let's see. Okay, so sexual lessons number two. I had a couple of boyfriends, so we're getting into high school already. And um, one of them, you know, we'd see each other. We had a lot of freedom and everything. Uh, but one of them started, he had an older brother, and he learned some things from that older brother that were not that healthy, and he tried to teach them to me. And I said, no, I don't want to see you anymore. I was actually quite prudish and not at all advanced. 
in that area, which was a good thing. So I broke up with him, and I, I had some goals toward marriage, we, we all do, whether we you know, take them out and look at them or uh, they're underneath there, but we do. And my goal was to find a boyfriend who was a nice person and uh, who would love me and who would, this was important, ask me to marry him. That little bit of romance was super important. For one thing, my parents, grandparents in the old country had arranged marriages. And my grandmother said, no, you can't arrange a marriage for me. I need to know this boy. And she did. She knew him, and she said, okay. I heard that story a million times when I was growing up. How in the old country, it was all arranged. Your parents did that. That was not going to happen to me. I was an American. I was new, new century, you know, in the middle of it. And um, so that was an important goal. So this got really serious. This, this, this part's kind of freaky. My mother, so I'm about 16 or 17 at this point, I'm going, I have this new boyfriend and we've been going out for about a year. He's already in college. She tells me I need to get birth control. <laughs> Hello? Birth control? Yeah, you know, you know what that's for. So you don't get pregnant. Yeah, you're right. There I was, Miss Prudish, and my mother is telling me this. So I did it. I went down to the wherever you go, got the thingy, and used it. You know what that means. So being the little hippie that I was, the little bohemian, I took it a step further. She didn't tell me to do this. When the end of the semester came, we rented an apartment together for the summer in Manhattan, and they didn't know about it. They thought I was living in this little apartment they put me in, this little rooming place, a room where guys couldn't come up. Well, they could come up, but you had to leave the door open, and they had to leave before 9 o'clock. So it was all chaperoned. No, I didn't do that. I, I had the door open for me, so I walked through it. And um, we rented an apartment, had a nice time, had a great summer, went to work, came back every night. At the end of the summer, he said bye-bye, and he went up to college. And I was in college. Did I say that? I must be getting the times mixed up. I was a little older, so I was already in college. I came home, and I told my mother what I had been doing. She didn't hit the ceiling exactly. She didn't say anything. She got Spartan on me. She said nothing. A couple of days later, they tell me. She, she went and conferred with my dad. And he, being from South America, she's going to get married. You don't do this. If you're going to do this, this is the consequence. You're going to get married. And where was he's going to ask me to marry him? So that went, in, that went underneath here. That went right under here because I could not disobey my parents. It just was not possible at that point. It went under here, and it went under here as anger. I was so angry and felt cheated. I called it the double cross in my mind. And um, I said to myself, this is not going to stand because I was self-willed and strong-willed, very strong-willed. 
although it didn't come out yet because I was under them. But inside, all those things were sitting there building up. So outwardly, the outward part, that pretty part, that said, okay, Mom, okay, Dad, I'll pose for a picture. Didn't look so pretty. Inside was really ugly. It was really bad. But I was, that's how I was. They didn't, they didn't live with God. They did not bring God into our lives. They didn't tell us anything about any other reality. The reality is you get what you want. You get strong-willed and you get angry. Oh, my dad had a pet name for me when, when I was little. His little Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> I was. I would just blow up because that was a neat and, and uh, you know, quick way to get my own way. And I loved it. Hey, this is cool. I can get what I want. So I was a self-willed little heathen. <laughs> and um, God had other, other ideas. Other ideas. So one of the ways he came after me, God did, was when I was um, a little infant, till I was four, my mom went to work, and I had Josie. Josie was a sweetheart just off the bus, the, not the bus, the boat, from Czechoslovakia or somewhere. And um, she took care of me 24-7. She lived in the house and everything, and I loved Josie. Josie was like a mom to me. And Josie went to church. And apparently, I said, I want to go to church with you, Josie. And she asked my mom and dad, and they went, I didn't, I didn't know what a church was, but if Josie went there, I wanted to go there. So, okay, I didn't go there. When I was um, 11 and a half, before we moved to Queens, this was still in Brooklyn, uh, I shifted from the private school to the public schools. And there were lots of different kids there. And one of them was this girl. Remember I told you about these other ethnic groups? She was from an ethnic group who was Italian. She was eating a lot of pasta, and she was quite a big girl. And me, being so, you know, hooked on looks, in my mind, I made fun of her. She's too fat. She's too big. But lo and behold, I got to know Bernadette. Bernadette! And Bernadette was a nice person. And she invited me to her house in Brooklyn, in this section that we didn't go to. And I asked mom, and she said, okay. So after lunch, uh, after school, rather, we walked down to Bernadette's house and climbed the stairs up, you know, a couple of stairs to her place, and we opened the door. And inside, there was a spirit of prayer. And I felt it. It was like something coming around me. It was living in that place. I said, what is going on here? There's something in here that I like, and it's different. I don't have it in my house, and I loved it. But that door shut. That was just a little, it was kind of like, I don't know, maybe lifting this up and saying, come on out of there, got something better. I don't know, I didn't, I didn't really think of it that way. Just didn't think of it at all, but there it was. And it was God, because they were Italian Catholics, and they were praying all the time in there. 
and there was an aroma of prayer. That was beautiful. So we moved to Queens, and I had these different boyfriends, you know, and then we had this double cross, and I had to get married, and I'm like, I'm not even pregnant. (laughs) Why do I have to get married? But that's how it was. So we got married. This was 1960. I don't want you to be doing the math, okay? I was 20. And we had, we we moved uh, up to where he was going to college, and I switched colleges, and we were having a good time. And um, got to be 1963. Anybody remember what happened in the fall of 1963? Yeah. We had a big murder of our president. And everything just exploded with him. For us, we were young people. We were not hardened. You know, we, we were idealistic. And um, everything just blew up in our faces. It was pretty terrible. It was pretty traumatic. You know? So that happened. And a few more of those assassinations. And then, and then he said he wanted to move to Florida. I was a New Yorker. I, I wanted to stay in New York. No, his family moved to Florida because his dad retired from, um, they were building houses, what do you call that, developers? Yeah. And uh, his brother was going to come down and work, and they wanted him to come down and work too. And so I said, okay. I didn't really want to leave New York. I didn't want to leave my family, my grandparents, my parents. And I agreed. So we had two children down there. My daughter-in-law is sitting right there. She married one of those children. The boy. She married the boy. (laughs) And she is the natural mother of four boys. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay, so then it got to be 1968, and the business went... The mother got cancer... The dad, the father died, my, my in-laws. Uh, the brother folded up the business and moved to California. And there we were. There was nothing, nothing happening. We didn't have a business. We didn't have a family. We had the two kids and us. And um, the hippies were going crazy. 1968, there were people called hippies coming out of the woodwork. And um, I thought, let's just join the hippies. That seemed to be a life goal for me. (laughs) It was a natural fit, right? So we actually did that. We had this gorgeous house, really gorgeous. It was in the magazines and everything. And we said, oh, that's enough of that. Let's just get a wagon, you know. (laughs) And we did. Don't look horrified, girls. So we we packed it all up and... um, Oh, there's this picture of me. I'm sorry, I didn't have time to get photos. Otherwise, I'd have had photos up there. So I, I was like, had long hair. So I'm next to this van in a, in a place where the, the vans go. What do you call that? KOA. <laughs> I'm in KOA, and there's the van. We don't see the two kids, but um, there's my husband. You know, he's got this little mustache, and he's got this... Um, polo shirt on and nice kind of jeans and a, and a good haircut and there's me in, in sort of preppy pants and a nice little t-shirt and my ponytail like this and the two of us are 
stiff as boards. <laughs> mackerel. Now, what were you thinking of? But we have the two kids, and we're heading west. We're, we're east coasters now. That's, that's where we were, even though we went down to Florida, but we started in New York. We're New Yorkers. We kitted out this van, and we start. Who ever heard of the west? I mean, yeah, it's part of the United States, but does anything happen? Does anybody live out there? So we thought we'll find out. You better stop laughing because you're making me laugh. <laughs> so the first thing we do is we go through Texas. Texas is nice, big. But we get to the other side, and then we... Oh, I remember. My brother was going to meet us in, in this little town in, in New Mexico, so we had to go up. We went across Texas, and then we went started going up. And we go to, um, um, you know those underground caves? What are they called? Carlsbad Caverns. They were really nice. I, I enjoyed those. And then we start going up further, and we get into what they call mountains. <laughs> we had some of those in the east, but they're very old. And they've been worn down. <laughs> like old teeth. <laughs> there just wasn't much left of them. So that's what we grew up with. But these guys, they're big. So we get into the Rockies, the, the Rockies, and it uh, looks pretty impressive. And we pull into Santa Fe, oh, pretty nice. No, my brother's meeting us further north, Taos. Oh, you mean Taos. <laughs> yeah, that's what we mean. So we meet him there, and um, we we'll hook up with him, and he's got this girl he's with. And uh, we take off, and anyway, we go to the West Coast, and we visit some stuff there, and I get poison ivy terrible, so we have to leave. And then we come back to Taos. We decide we're gonna, just going to park there. So <laughs> we found what we thought was an abandoned cabin up in the mountains, uh, it actually belonged to somebody, but they weren't living in it at the time. <laughs> That's what hippies do, right? They just move in. So we moved in, and we started learning how to farm, how to make fires in the fireplace, how to sleep on the floor, how to live with dirt, how to haul water. It was fun. It was terrific fun. I loved it. He, he kind of liked it, too. And um, then I can't remember. I didn't take drugs. That's all, all I have to say. Much. <laughs> two times LSD. Only two. I can't remember what happened. But lots of marijuana. That was it. Nothing harder. I swear. So... We just kind of dig in. We become part of the hippie community. And there's other people living up there in these other little cabins. I don't know if they owned them or built them or what. But there were all these different people. And at that point, first place, I loved it because it was like a foreign country. They hardly spoke English. <laughs> and what they did say, I didn't understand. But everybody was just living, you know, crazy. 
So I started to come into my own. You know, like, this is what I was brought up to live like. This, these are the Bohemians of the new, the new age. My parents were Bohemians, and that's what I am, too. So I just kind of grooved into being a hippie. But, um, and there were some really, really nice people, and there were some really good things happening there. But at a certain point, that thing that I had in the back of my mind that I'm not going to stay in this relationship because you have forced me into it started coming back up again because I was and continued to be an unsaved person with all this baggage underneath here. And it was starting to, I don't know, stir around or something. And in addition to that, the culture was collapsing. I mentioned the assassinations. Then there was a movie called um, The Graduate in which he's not only seduced by the girl's mother, but at the end, she gets married to somebody else. And as they're walking out the wedding in the chapel, and I say to myself, she's married, so it's over. He goes up to her, takes her hand, and takes her away. It did not matter in that film that they were married. That was a big lesson. That was a really big lesson. Somebody was telling me that your marriage vows don't matter. And I took that to heart. Okay, maybe I can get out of this. Because I was taking from the culture what was already in my heart. And it just went from bad to worse after that. There were articles in magazines how divorce doesn't hurt you. And this is, this is like what's happening today. I know I, I got the memo in my head, do not preach, okay? So, but this is what's happening today. They're telling you things that are lies. They are just lies. And that's what I was hearing was lies about divorce. It's okay for the kids, you know, your second husband is just as good a father as your first one and all this made up stuff. But I wanted to believe it because I wanted out. And eventually I got out and I pushed him out. And that wasn't really a very nice thing to do. Because in the culture that I grew up in, you can do anything you want. And there are no consequences. There just aren't. You can just do it. And nothing's going to happen. And I believe that. I soon found another boyfriend who was more like the fellow who lived next door than anybody else. Because that was like, that's who you marry. Or not even married, never got married. Uh, I just started living with him. And there was also this other little story going around that you could change other people into the way you wanted them to be. That's what my mom was trying to do to me. Of course, it didn't work, but I didn't figure that part out. But that, that was a very strong idea. It didn't, and therefore, it didn't matter who you married, basically, or who you were friends with, because you would just start to change them. And they would become really nice people. Anybody ever hear of that theory? Especially girls are told that, you know, you'll influence him. He'll be nicer once he's married to you because you'll help him. And he'll, you know, listen to all the nice things you have to say. So I just thought, okay, we'll push this one out. And there'll be another one 
who will fill, fulfill my desire to have somebody ask me to marry them. So I'll know that I'm loved, because I need to be loved. So I pushed him out. He started taking more and more drugs. Seriously, drugs. Cocaine. And not only that, he started dealing it, which was not only dangerous to your mind, it was dangerous altogether. Very dangerous in all kinds of ways. So he had another girlfriend, and this was going on a couple of years. Oh, we had been married 12 years. And so he found another lady who liked him, and he asked her to marry him. And she said, no, you're too crazy. You can't do it. And um, so this is the hard part. Okay. He went home and he killed himself. And that was not supposed to happen. Because you could do anything you wanted. And there would be no consequences. So that was a lie. It wasn't true at all. And... Um, these people, mutual friends, came the next morning. So I was living in the hills of San Luis, Colorado, same as Taos, in a little cabin with the boyfriend and the two kids. And these friends came the next morning and told me what had happened. And I just went into a state of shock. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I did believe it, but I couldn't believe this was happening. So it was probably the next morning or something. My boyfriend was out in the fields with the kids. I was alone in the house. And I'm sitting there, stunned, absolutely stunned. I, I just, nothing computed anymore. I'm stunned. And I heard a voice. It was like in Bernadette's house. This voice started talking to me in my heart. And he said, I am God. And I am real. And Jesus Christ is my son. And I, I said, yes, Lord. I just believed what I heard. And all those crazy parts of my personality and brain and the things under here, they went like this. They got knit together. And I was a whole person for the first time in my life. And so... Here I was in this weird condition. I didn't even know it was weird. There was nothing. <laughs> I didn't know anything. So we drove to Alamosa. We were in Colorado. We drove to Alamosa. There was a bookstore. I went in there, and I bought this Bible, King James. It's been rebound. And it says somewhere in here. Oops. I can't remember. I can't find it. But it says it's pretty old. It says, San Luis, Colorado, 1974. So that was when my husband killed himself. 1974, I've had this. I don't read King James anymore because it's too hard to understand. But I started reading it. And nobody knew what had happened to me. And the day before this happened, before I got this news, two friends from Taos had been visiting, uh, two girls, and they were Christians. There were lots of Christians because they were called Jesus freaks in those days. So, and I had been mocking them to their faces. And so when the news got out that Terry, that's what they called me at the time, had become a Christian, it was like, it was like what they said about Paul, the one who used to persecute 
the Christians is now a believer. And that's what they said about me. They couldn't believe it. So at any rate, so I was like 32. And all this education that I'd had before was going here. And this new revelation I had was coming here. And it took three years for one to displace the other, which means I couldn't talk. I couldn't put two words together or figure out a sentence. And everybody thought I was just high on drugs, but no, I wasn't. And some girls said to me later, we didn't think you were going to make it because I couldn't say anything. But I said, I didn't say this to them, but I, I just would start talking to God. <laughs> he was so real. He is so real. I just said, no, Jesus is inside me, so I'm going to be okay. doesn't matter what's on the outside. I'm going to be okay. So the boyfriend that I had was abusive. He was an alcoholic. He did not change, contrary to expectations. And he was abusive to me. And because I thought I knew, I knew that I was a sinner, I let him continue that behavior. Until I read this book enough to realize that Jesus had paid for my sins. And I was not going to keep on paying for them. My faith and my trust were in him. And it was a sin for me to continue in that relationship. It was denying that Jesus had paid for every sin of mine. So I had to stop that relationship, but I didn't know how. And I was very full of sin, and sin makes you weak. You can't stand up for what you know is right. But I did run away, so to speak, to uh, the Assemblies of God, we were living back in New Mexico, and there was a Spanish assembly, and I, I ran away to Sister Silvia Gonzalez. She spent the day with me, talking to me and listening to my story. And she said to me, are you married to him? I said, no. She said, in that case, you need to leave him. I thought, that's right. So I went back to our little cabin, and I told this man that, we were not married, and in God's sight, that's wrong, and he needs to get out. He said, no. Well, God had been speaking to me, and three times he said to me, will you give this man over to me? It was a question. It wasn't a demand. He didn't say I had to. He was asking my permission. And three times I said, no, I don't want to. Why? So I wanted to change him. Again, same old story. I wanted him to become a born-again Christian and a nice man and not an alcoholic and not beat me. And I wanted that. And three times God asked me, and I said, no. So when I came home from Sister Sylvia's and told him he had to leave, and he said no, I said, in that case, we need to get married. Because I was a little legalist. I didn't know that this is not going to solve the problem. So I went outside and I said, oh, so I told him we have to get married. Did I say that already? Yes. And so, I, but I didn't want to. So I went outside and I said, God, he's yours. I turn him over to you now. So the plans proceeded for a wedding and a day or two before the wedding. Hang on now. 
He flipped his truck over and died. That was two. And this was terribly, terribly hard on the kids. If you can imagine growing up with a family, like the, the family I was providing for, providing for them was unbelievable. It was terrible. So I thought, in this little pea brain, I thought, the problem is he wasn't a Christian and we didn't get married. Because I still could not let go of the fact that I desperately needed to have a man in my life. I could not stand without one. That's lie number 52. So after I recovered somewhat from this death, there was another man who came along. I convinced myself he was a Christian. He was a hippie, but he was not a Christian. Convinced myself he was a Christian. He was willing to get married, so we got married, and he was a monster. (laughs) But this time he didn't die. (laughs) I figured out there was a legal system, and it was called divorce. So he didn't have to pay the extreme price this time. And my husband, Jerry, is just fine, thank you. (laughs) So uh, this man, uh, we were married for two years. The boyfriend who was abusive, that was seven years. This man was two years, so I was catching on quicker. And... um, He provided me with an excuse because, being the little legalist, I couldn't divorce him. But it turned out he had a girlfriend in town. Yay! (laughs) Because that was adultery and that was legal grounds. So I did. I divorced him. And then I went into hibernation. (sighs) Finally, everybody draws a breath. I did not have any boyfriends for 18 years. That was good. And I learned a lot. So we're in the third phase now. All the men in marriages are behind. And uh, the kids graduated high school, go to college. And I went to the East Coast to a Bible college. Seriously, what time is it? 9.10. When is this supposed to be over? 9.15. Oh, keep going. Uh, let's see. So I went east. I, I tried to go east to a Bible college, and I, and I wrote to several of them. We actually had mail in, in New Mexico. You could send a letter. And they would get it, and they would send it back, you know, return. So all these colleges along the East Coast, they said, we're sorry, we don't take people who've been divorced. Divorced? That was the least of it. (laughs) But they were little legalists, too. And if you had been divorced, uh uh-uh, you couldn't go there. So I was just about to give up the plan, because I really wanted to go to Bible college about to give it up when this letter arrived. And I hadn't even solicited them. They were from a place called Elam Gospel Church. Remember that name. It's a fabulous place. And they were a charismatic, you might say Pentecostal, church. Uh, Well, they were a Bible college. And they had a church and they had a sending agency where they ordained pastors and missionaries. So out of the blue, this letter came, and I called them up and I said, Hmm, I'd like to come to your Bible college. Yes, okay, fine. Uh, But there's a problem. Oh, what's the problem? I've been divorced. Oh, that's no problem. That's no problem at all. Okay, fine, I'm coming. So I rented out the house. The kids were gone. They drove me all around the country. And I said hi to my mom in New York City. 
and went up to Bible college. So I wasn't a hippie anymore. Everybody in the Bible college, just about as nuts as I was. (laughs) Well, let's see. Before I left for the Bible college, we have a few minutes, I'll tell you. (laughs) After all the guys were gone out of my life, and the kids were still there, the youngest one was still there, Anna, I used to have these long sessions with, with the Holy Spirit. I'd have these long sessions, usually on Saturdays when I didn't have to go get up and do stuff. And he started dealing with my life. He started dealing with my strong will, with the temper, uh, you know, all this stuff that was packed in here. Started taking it apart, piece by piece. And it was frightening. It was very, very scary. And that's how I learned to trust Jesus and to trust the Holy Spirit. Now, I have a little thing on the back of that, wherever it is. Oh, look at this. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's what I was learning. Because the Holy Spirit said to me in one of these things, uh, he took me to the edge of a cliff, you know, mentally, and, and he said, I want you to jump off, and I want you to, and I said, I don't want to jump off. He said, I'm going to catch you. I said, really? He said, yes, and I want you to trust me. No, I don't think so. So this went back and forth a few times, and finally I said, okay. And, and in the spirit or in my imagination, I jumped off that cliff, and as I was headed down, he caught me. And I said, oh, <laughs> this is fabulous. So shortly after that, I visited my mother, who always brought out the worst in me. <laughs> and, um, you know, my temper would just be horrendous. And, and while I was on that visit, my temper was getting really ratcheted up. And the Holy Spirit sent, said, said to me, it's like the cliff. If you ratchet down your temper now or give it over to me, I will help you. Well, I had already jumped off, and I knew that he could. So I said, okay. And I just gave the whole thing to him. And, and that was only one instance. But I, I went to the Bible college, and um, let's see what happened. Oh, the Taos pastor said I'd been delivered of seven demons like that lady, Mary, because I used to do this in Taos, too, after everybody was gone. So, you know, the, the house cleaning started. I'm sure it hasn't finished. It never finishes until we get there. So it was pretty intense for, for quite a while. I went to the Bible college, and I was there for, for, as a student for one year. Then, through the Spirit, they hired me to be the pastor's uh, secretary, so I did that. But at the the whole time, whenever I had free time, the Lord was ministering to me all these things that were packed in there and needed to come out and never would have come out without him. So a lot of them are mercifully gone. Um, Do not ask my husband (laughs) if they're all gone, okay? But a lot of them were gone. So, And I used to be... Completely walled off. That was another thing the Lord showed me. I had, I had built around myself, you know, not only the boy with the fox, but I had built around myself a brick wall that was so incredibly thick 
it, it really took an act of God to start breaking it down. And my, and my willingness, you know, he would say, are you willing? If I'm willing, it's okay, so another piece comes down. And I had walled myself off from other people. I had no friends. Nobody knew me. Until I went to the Bible college, and they were so kind. I wouldn't say they became my fast friends, but they had a lot of wounded people there. And they started helping me let go of all that pain, all that self-will, all that anger. Forgiving, forgiveness is a huge, huge brick. A huge brick. And as soon as you start forgiving whoever it was, whatever they did, Jesus paid for it all. It does not matter. And if you walk in unforgiveness, you're not really walking in him. And you haven't got, you know, everything he has for you. And you're, you're in, a, in a box. You're stiff. People don't know you. And it's never... I wrote down these um, journals, they call them. We used to call them diaries, but they call them journals. And I have about seven or eight, and they're all for all these different years... And so I've been reading through them, you know, like, oh. but they have they have some good parts in them, where it's it's really it's really about forgiveness. That was that was a huge one because I was so angry at my parents for you know what happened, but it wasn't it wasn't worth it. It really wasn't worth it, and I made a mess out of huge parts of my life, and now God's redeemed it. So there we are. Any questions?